to be reminded through melody that no matter what's going on in the world, that the Lord is sovereignly in control of all things, that there's nothing that happens that doesn't pass through His sovereign hands as Christians. That is immensely, should be immensely comforting to us. We are journeying, journeying through the book of 1 Timothy together, and we have a few more weeks left in this letter. And um, just by way of reminder, we uh, have been viewing this as a letter written to a church, as it is, that would have been read, it's, it's, it's more than probable that it would have been read amongst the gathering of the church of Ephesus, and, and the significance of this, and, and one of the reasons that I think it's important that we've gone through this book together uh, is because uh, we really, as a local church, planted uh, less than a year ago, last year, and, and we worked through our statement of faith together, uh, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. We looked at how it summarizes key passages or uh, key doctrines in Scripture, and the book of First Timothy really is an appropriate book, in my opinion, uh, for a relatively new church plant, and it's because it's a letter that's written about how a church should function, written uh, about elders, written about deacons, written about members, written about the care of God's church because uh, this is, uh, the, 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 the visible church here is the way that the Lord Jesus Christ expects his church to be cared for until he returns, right? And we want to be a church uh, that pays attention to what the Word says, and so far as it depends on us, we want to submit the things uh, that we believe to the Word of God, and we want to submit how we function, uh, including how we love and care for one another. And this morning, we're looking at, and I couldn't think of a better title because I'm not creative, uh, than regarding elders. That was as far as I got. Uh, but we are looking, we looked at the qualifications of an elder and of a deacon uh, several months ago, back in chapter 3, and this morning we're in, again, chapter 5. Uh, last week we looked at widow care, and this week we're looking at... Uh, a, 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 the Apostle Paul is writing this. This would have been given, again, to Timothy and to the elders, but for it to be, have been read in front of the congregation would have given and equipped the congregation on how it is to deal with their elders or treat their elders or view their elders. And so this really is, is uh, a sort of, it's re- there's relational instruction here in this passage, but there's also a guarding here because when an elder gets sideways and, and there's, there's private hidden sin that's festered for a long time and that comes to light, Paul gives handles on how it is that that should be dealt with. His aim is, again, to protect the church, to protect the testimony of Jesus Christ, um, because this is um, the way, all of this stuff is eternally significant. And, and so the, these instructions here, aren't, we shouldn't view them as out of place, or we shouldn't view them as um, secondary. We should see this as one whole letter. And so let's, let's actually get to this section. I'm going to read it and I'll pray and then we'll, I'll begin to kind of make some notes for us this morning. But starting with verse 17, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says this to Timothy and to the church of Ephesus. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy 
of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Right? That may be a weird saying or a foreign saying to you there. And, quote, the laborer deserves his wages. In verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous. We saw this passage last week, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we are able to have in it, God. And we ask that you, by your spirit, would grant us understanding, would grant us humility, and Lord, that we would come away from your word warmer toward you than we were when we arrived this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a question as obvious as the answer may be, when we read a, a passage like this, it should be, why is this passage important? Why is this important? And again, we want to think about the nature of the letter again. Timothy and the, under, and, and the other elders of the church, they're under-shepherds, okay? They're, they're to guard the gospel of God that's been entrusted to them. Actually, later in the letter, we, we see the Apostle Paul charge Timothy, he says, guard the good deposit, is the way that it's mentioned. And, and so Timothy and the elders are to guard the good deposit of, of the gospel by faithfully exalting Christ in, in word and the preaching of the word. They're to guard the good deposit of the gospel by faithfully exalting Christ in their character. There should be harmony with their, in their character and in the word that they're charged to preach, the gospel that they're charged to preach. And they're to do this faithfully to this congregation, right, to the church of Ephesus. For, for us, 2,000 plus years later, Deer Park Fellowship is a congregation for which Christ died for. His precious blood spilled so that we could be saved. Right? And, and the congregation has responsibilities as well in this. The congregation is to effort, and it does take effort. The congregation is to effort to be open to Christ. The congregation is to effort to be open to his gospel and to make it possible for the elders to labor among them delightfully as under shepherds. So this, this really, this section, this whole letter really is about the care of God's church, right? From the eldership to the member in the pew, the care of God's church. And really, there are three main reasons. And again, this, these aren't the only reasons, but I would say these are three main reasons why this passage of Scripture would be important, and, and they will guide our way through the text this morning. And the three ways are this. First, it's important because a congregation needs to take care of their elders, especially the ones that preach and teach. 
which is an awkward passage to preach on as the one standing up here preaching and teaching. Secondly, it's important because elders are sinners, and the congregation needs to know how to deal with an unrepentant, abusive elder and protect the rest of the church. Third, it's important because congregations tend to prematurely ordain men to the office of elder for pragmatic reasons, some for even noble reasons, and this could be harmful to God's church in the long run. Right? So it's important because a congregation needs to take care of their elders, especially the ones that preach and teach. It's important because elders are sinners. The congregation needs to know how to deal with an unrepentant, abusive elder and protect the rest of the church. And three, it's important because congregations tend to prematurely ordain men to the office of elder for pragmatic and even noble reasons. This can be harmful to God's church in the long run. So let's take the, the, let's take the first reason first, because it's first. That makes sense. That a congregation needs to take care of their elders, especially the ones that preach and teach, right? We see that in verses 17 and 18, and we see, it says, let the elders who rule well, rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The scriptures say you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer it deserves his wages. Right? And to understand this passage, and, and maybe this is in the back of your minds already because of the journey that we've, we've had together over the last several, several months, but in order to understand this passage the way that Paul intends it, the way that the Ephesian church would have understood it, we do need to know the three types of law in the Old Testament. And I'm, I'm not going to preach that because I've preached that several times, again, over the last several months, and you can check those sermons out. But in the Old Testament, there were three types of law, okay? There were three types of law, and this will help understand why he's using don't muzzle an ox, labor is deserving of his wager. But in the Old Testament, there were three types of law. The first type is the moral law of God, right, which we see summarized by the Ten Commandments, okay? And, and, and we know that the law, and, and Calvin gives us several different uses for the moral law of God, but one of them, chiefly, the main one, is that it should drive us to Jesus Christ because we see the moral law of God, right? Through the Ten Commandments, we see that we don't measure up. Even on our best day, we don't measure up. And we see Christ more clearly who did measure up and who did uphold the law of God. And we should flee to him. We should run to him. We should rest in him, right? Christ is the only one to ever uphold the moral law of God. And now in Christ, right, those of us who are Christians, those of us whose hearts have been captured by the gospel, we can joyfully submit ourselves and cultivate obedience, right? On this journey of sanctification, we could submit ourselves to the moral law of God, knowing that this side of eternity, we will not uphold it perfectly. That won't happen until our glorification, but we should desire, because Christ is in us, because we're in Him. We should desire to uphold the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments. We should increasingly grow in that direction. We should be increasingly growing in our holiness, so that's the first type of law, the moral law of God. Secondly, we, we see the ceremonial law. It's called the ceremonial law. And, and think of all those sacrifices in the Old Testament and, and the regulations surrounding them in order for those sacrifices to be acceptable. Right? Christ Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. Right? 
Christ Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. Christ is, is the eternal and sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Every single one of our sins, we will never have to offer another sacrifice ever again, right? Christ is the once for all sacrifice for sin. We see that in all throughout the New Testament, but very clearly in Hebrews chapter 10, Christ Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law. And when we think ceremonial law, we think of all those Old Testament sacrifices, okay? And then the third type of law, which is what the Apostle Paul is quoting this morning, is the civil law, or what's known as the judicial law, okay? And all this civil law, all these judicial laws, they were given to the theocracy of Israel as it was related to the daily life and welfare of the people of Israel. And Paul, in our passage, he's quoting the civil law of God, okay? And, and stay with me for a moment because I know that this is a, a, can be a little bit tedious, but I want us to see clearly what Paul's doing. I want us to understand it as best as we can the way the Ephesian church would have understand it. But in the civil law, okay, in the judicial law, we find aspects of the moral law. We find aspects of the moral law, and that makes it profitable even now for us to apply the moral principle of the civil law in some cases. And this is what the 1689 calls the general equity of the civil civil law. And general equity means that we can, again, use moral principles from the civil laws that God gave to Israel, and we can apply them in how we love our neighbor. So in our text this morning, Paul quotes from the civil law when he says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Right? He quotes from the civil law of God when he says that the laborer deserves his wages. Right? And just a shorthand, again, for time, we won't go there, but you can find this in Leviticus chapter 19. You can find this in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And we see the moral principle utilized in several places in the New Testament, in Matthew 10 and Luke 10, but perhaps the clearest place that Paul explains the moral principle in this civil law is 1 Corinthians 9. You can flip over there if you'd like. I don't know if I have it on the screen or not, but 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 to 12, Paul says this to the church of Corinth. He says, It is written in the law of Moses... You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. There it is. He's quoting again. He said, is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more. The Apostle Paul speaking to the church of Corinth. Right, the moral principle that we see in the civil law here, and you've probably already guessed it, is this. Don't steal. Right, do not steal. Right, Paul is saying that elders who labor among you, particularly in preaching and teaching, should be taken care of. They should be honored, and, they, and, and, and doubly so, doubly honored. But in other words... Right? Hard, honest workers, and we could expand this, right? We could expand this beyond just elder ministry, but hard, honest workers should be paid an honest wage, right? To, to cheat a worker out of his wages or to nickel and dime him is the equivalent of breaking the Eighth Commandment. And, and let me just say this, again, because it's a bit humorous for me that this is where we are in our First Timothy study, but the members of this church, especially 
over the last few weeks, with everything going on in my family, you have showed me and my family such kindness and, and, and such generosity. Right? You, you have gone and continue to go way beyond the instructions in this passage. Your prayers, your, your generosity, your attentiveness, they have brought me uh, to tears on several occasions over the last several weeks, and, and it has been deeply, deeply humbling to me. Your, your generosity feels weighty to me. And so I, I feel thankful to be your pastor. I feel honored uh, to be your pastor. And the grace and the kindness and the provisions that you've showed my family genuinely, it, it has the aroma of the grace and the kindness and the provisions that God in Christ Jesus has showed us all. And when God's people take notice and, and take care, I, th- I think that is how things are sp- supposed to be, right? That, that should be the natural outworking of people whose hearts have been changed by the gospel. It, the aroma of Christ should be noticeable in our relationships with one another. And I, and I think that that's one of the important things that happens when a pastor cares for a church and when a church cares for its pastor. And I think about the testimony that that is to an onlooking world. All right, we live in a day and age where folks love to criticize the church. Right? And, and don't misunderstand me, right? There's, there, there's legitimate criticisms of, of, the, of the church, many justifiable criticisms and, and hypocrisies. But a church that cares for each other is beyond reproach. It's beyond reproach. Right? Jesus says in John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Right? That you love one another. Just as I've loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people, and this is the testimony that it projects, right? By this, by this love, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Right? And, and so the... the the warmth in relationship, right? The desire to honor Christ in our relationship with one another has a gospel impact to those that are onlooking, right? There's gospel significance here, and I am encouraged by the heart posture of our local church, and I know that our elders, the rest of the elders, feel the exact same way. Right? But our love, right, tangible, demonstrative love for each other, it testifies. And it testifies to an onlooking world of our love for King Jesus. Right? That love for King Jesus, a deep-seated love for King Jesus, it can't help but to spill over in our relationships with one another. Right? Again, not to bring it back because I've preached this before, but when we look at the Ten Commandments, there's a reason Right? The reformers looked at them as divided into two tables. The first four, our heart orient, orientation toward the Lord, our worship toward the Lord. The back six, our relationship with one another. Right? The significance there is, is when our worship is of the triune God alone and it's rightly directed by his word. Those back six commandments, the way that we love one another, begin to fall into place the way that they should fall into place. So I'm, th- I'm thankful to be part of a loving, caring church family. Secondly, right, elders are, 
are sinners and the congregation needs to know how to deal with an unrepentant, abusive elder and protect the rest of the church. Right? In verses 19 to 21, don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidences of two or three witnesses, which is significant there, is for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, do nothing from partiality. In this passage, again, we have Paul quoting from the civil law. Deuteronomy chapter 19 is what he's quoting from when he is talking about the evidence of two or three witnesses, right? So we had him quoting from the civil law as it related to not muzzling an ox and the labor being deserving of the wages. And then we have him quoting from the civil law as well as it relates to two or three witnesses, right? And he applies the general equity, the moral principle from the Ten Commandments, which is thou shalt not bear false witness, right? That's what he's concerned about here initially, right? He was concerned about stealing at the beginning as it relates to to a congregation taking care of, of its elders, here he's, he's concerned. There's, it's a two-pronged concern, but the first concern is that there be no false accusations that are given credibility that destroy someone, right? And I hope that we can see kind of in our overly connected society of accusations that de- often despises forgiveness and redemptions, we should see why a standard like this from the civil law, the two or three witnesses, why it is important. We should be able to notice that. I read just a few, or I read this week actually, that, that uh, eyewitness identifications account for 69% of the more than 375 wrongful convictions in the U.S. that were overturned post-conviction by DNA, right? 69% uh, were uh, eyewitness accounts, if you will. Now, what if we, if you track with me, what if we doubled or tripled the requirement for eyewitnesses to match that uh, uh, of the civil law so that we could prevent folks from bearing false witness against one another, or even just making a mistake, right? Man, that guy looks like the guy that I saw, right? Some guilty people may get off, but would we be better off as a society to have a better eyewitness process? But bring it to the church for a minute, right? Because again, the church should be the model for how to deal with sin. The church should be the model for how to deal with accusations. And the standard applied is a good gatekeeper for both confronting an elder, or anyone for that matter, and for protecting an elder from false accusations. And, and protecting an elder from false accusations is important. Right? One commentator says this, "'None are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. The enemies of the gospel often take vengeance on the ministers of the gospel. A smear campaign can completely ruin a leader's ministry.'" Right? Adherence to this biblical principle that Paul's putting forward here could significantly decrease the chance of an elder's ministry being ruined. But what if the accusations are credible? Right? What if they're telling the truth? What if they're confirmed? Right? What does Paul say of the guilty and the unrepentant elder? Right? Because we know that there are domineering elders, Right? We know that there are domineering pastors that should have long been removed from their post. What is the church to do about that? What should we do, do about that as a church? Right? Elders in confirmed sin, according 
Again, to the moral principle in that civil law, elders in confirmed sin, Paul says they're to be rebuked. They're to be rebuked. And, and that word rebuked is different from what we see in the beginning of this chapter as it related to scolding or embarrassing an elderly saint in Christ Jesus. This particular word for rebuke, this Greek word here, it means to point out sinful error. It means to expose. It means to confront. The aim is to put one back on the right path. And if possible, if possible, it should be done privately. And we have passages such as Matthew chapter 18 that gives us handles on how to do this in a way that honors the Lord. But what if the elder is unrepentive? You've confronted the elder, and the elder says, I have no sin. What then? What if he's domineering? What if he's aggressive? What if he is hard-hearted? Because that seems to be the direction that the Apostle Paul is leaning in, right? He says, then rebuke, decently and orderly, rebuke in front of the whole congregation, the whole membership. That's what he says. Why? Right? First, public unrepented sins should be dealt with publicly. Right? This is a sad but necessary last step in confrontation. Right? A church membership in unity should expose and confront, along with the other elders in good standing, the elder that refuses to see a sin and repent of a sin. Right? But Paul says that the public confrontation should also happen so that the, quote, rest may stand in fear. The rest may stand in fear, right? And I think that, I think that this is multi-pronged here. First, this is the revoking of the ordination of an elder, right? This is saying you're no longer fit for service, right? And again, this should be done alongside of the other godly elders, right? This isn't a rogue operation. This isn't, man, he's offended me, so therefore I'm going to go after him. Again, there's a protection here of the two or three eyewitness account here, right? This is a God-fearing process, right? But this public rebuke is a public admission that the church in unity is concerned for the soul of the pastor, concerned for his spiritual well-being. And we know from other parts in the New Testament that if he's unrepented, if he's unrepentive, he should be treated like an unbeliever, not treated like a brother in Christ, which means that the church and the remaining elders should be evangelizing him, right? Should be preaching to him repentance of sin and trust in Christ Jesus. So that's another reason why this would get to the place where it would need to be done publicly if this elder was not repentive. Another reason is it's also sanctifying for the congregation, right? If an elder is an habitual, unrepentant sin, this affects the entire congregation. There's no way that it doesn't affect the entire congregation. And it's good for us to see the sinister and dangerous nature of sin if it's left unaddressed, right? The Scripture speaks of sin doing a leavening work, right? Until it leavens the whole lump, right? Until it infects, gets into everything, right? It isn't just an individual matter because we're a corporate people, not just individuals, but because we're a corporate people, this stuff can go everywhere, right? We see earlier in uh, 1 Corinthians when the Apostle Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, right? We, we see him writing to them. And one of the pressing issues was that there was a man in the congregation that was sleeping with his stepmom, it seems, 
and the church was ignoring it at best, celebrating it at worst, and the Apostle Paul rebukes them and tells them to make things right, right? There was, there was a corporate nature to this guy's sin that had to be dealt with. Sin does a leavening work, Galatians 5, 9. So rebuking, the rebuking of an unrepentant elder has the power by God's grace to promote repentance in any congregant or congregation as a whole that may need to repent as well. In a sense, when we see someone stumble, we shouldn't be thinking, I can't believe so-and-so did that. Right, we should know our own hearts well enough to say, but for the grace of God, there go I. Right? Lord, help me not be deceived. Lord, help me to combat sin, to be aggressive with sin in its infancy. Because when we fall, right, we don't fall far. We don't go from, man, we're honoring God at 8 a.m. and then 10 a.m. We've made a shipwreck of our entire lives. Right? There's a bunch of decisions that lead up to that. And Paul, he gives it the weight of the presence of God and the elect elder, the elect angels here. These weighty instructions, verse 21, just to show the serious nature of how elders are to be both protected from false accusations, but also confronted in a way that honors God if they're stuck in sin and they refuse to repent of sin. It says in the presence, he charges them in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing, he says, from partiality. We're not to come to hasty judgments and ruin the life and ministry of an individual. But if the accusations are confirmed, we're to treat the elder that's in unrepentant sin without partiality. We're to treat them as an individual created in the image of God who needs to be restored. And then third, congregations tend to prematurely ordain men to the office of elder for pragmatic or even noble reasons. We see these last few verses. Don't be hasty in the laying on of hands nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Right, coming off of those last few verses, as it relates to the sins of elders, right, we should see why this, these instructions here are really important, right? Why the, why the vetting of an elder, of elder candidates, should be done with care, right? Our process, it, it doesn't ensure that this can't ever happen in the local church, but it's, it really is a good safeguarding step for our church. And while there are there's certainly local churches that can be paralyzed by fear of getting it wrong and, and never end up ordaining men to the pastorate, I think the more common error, at least in our day, is to ordain a man too quickly. And I think that that perhaps may be the, the error in our day. We saw back in 1 Timothy 3, Paul charged Timothy not to ordain a recent convert, right? Verse 6 there. And, and here we have him warn Timothy and the congregation to be watchful over the lives of those men that are looking 
to be ordained. And the reason for this is it has to do with character, right? It has to do with character, right? Paul says that some men's sins are visible, so much so that they go before them in judgment, right? But that, that's not the case for all men's sins, right? That, that, that's not the case for all men's sins, right? Some men's sins are, are at the subterranean level, Right, they're at the subterranean level, and it, and it takes time, and it takes pressure. Right? It takes circumstantial heat for those sins to kind of bubble up and, and come to the surface. Right? Paul, he's not calling for a sinless life in the life of an elder. Right? That would be impossible, but Paul is saying that elders should be men that walk in the light and not in the dark. Right? They should walk in the light and not in the dark. Elders should have a soft, warm, affectionate heart toward the Lord Jesus Christ and His Scripture and His church. Elders should be men that that confess sin quickly, repent of sin quickly. They should be weighty and serious-minded as it relates to their own walking with God, not trivial and not flippant. And Paul is is giving a safeguard to the church. His concern is about protecting the church. This is for the good of the church. It's, It's for the guarding of the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Paul says, watch the man for a while before you ordain him. Pay attention to him. How many stories have we heard of pastors who've brought reproach to the name of Christ and to his church? The the apostasy begins with the secret character of an elder, yet it has a far reach. It can leave a wake of destruction in the spiritual lives of the members of the church. That's why Paul gives handles on how to confront an elder who's caught in habitual unrepentant sin. So we have Paul saying, watch the elder candidate. Watch the man you seek to ordain. Right? As the saying goes, is the, I guess it's a proverb of sorts. Sow a thought, right? reap an action. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. What a man is will come out and it will solidify Itself. Proverbs 10 9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Yet instead of prayerfully watching and waiting and using God's methods and using God's measurements for pastoral ministry, we have a tendency to rush, right, and use our own method, right? We tell ourselves things like this Man, people are going to hell, therefore we have to ordain now. Instead of Trusting in God's sovereignty and God's timetable, we end up in doing that circumventing His ways. We circumvent His process. And that may be well-intentioned, right? That may be noble, but we don't put unqualified men in the pastorate no matter how noble our reason may sound, right? We don't do church ministry as if we're in a constant state of emergency. We may say that this person's gifted, and because they're, they're really gifted... We can overlook their character. Giftedness is important, but it doesn't mean that a a brother should be an elder. I've heard this one before. We classify obvious character issues and we recategorize them as personality traits. That's just how he's wired. You're just misunderstanding him when really he's prideful and domineering. Or we see a nice, likable guy, really, really nice guy, and we move him toward ordination. And the Apostle Paul says, that's favoritism. 
That's favoritism. Right? Paul is concerned. He's deeply concerned with the character, with, with purity, and that should be our primary concern too. And the reason that Paul's concerned and the reason that should be our concern is because it's God's concern. Right? The church doesn't need more great personalities. Right? The church doesn't need more celebrity speakers. The church needs godly, God-fearing men who reverence the Lord and His Word and deeply and sacrificially love His church. And the church needs men who have a high view of God's sovereignty and feel the freedom to submit to His process and plan. The church needs pastors whose character is shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Timothy was this type of pastor. Timothy was this type of pastor. I think one of the reasons we have this seemingly out-of-nowhere comment regarding wine and his stomach here, right? I think Paul gives Timothy this sort of side comment where he's, he's counseling Timothy to drink wine, and I think that this is connected to the concern that Timothy had regarding purity. A, a pastor can drink wine. That's not the issue. But Timothy wanted to be so far above reproach and never labeled as a drunkard, which is a disqualifier for ministry, right, that he drank only water, right? Timothy only drank water. And the issue in that day and age were the contaminants that were often found in water, right? Timothy seemed to be practicing self-discipline at the expense of his own health and was perhaps even hindering his ministry because of his commitment to the self-discipline, right? Drinking contaminated water was causing, it seems, health issues, so Paul's telling Timothy, I know that your concern is purity. I want you to know you're one of these pastors. You're one of these elders, godly men. You need to take care of yourself. It's okay to drink wine. Right? Wine's been known for a long time for its medicinal benefits. In ancient times, wine was used as a tonic, especially as it related to gut health, to indigestion. One commentator says, how few there are today who need to be forbidden water how many, rather, that need to be restricted to drinking wine soberly? Right, Timothy sought, he sought to watch his character for the cause of Christ, Christ, and he did so at the cost of his own health. And so we need a church whose love for Christ and his gospel spills over into the way that they love their elders. We need elders who are men of integrity, that we don't ordain too quickly to ministry, that seek to honor God, reverence His Word, and love the church that has been entrusted to Him. Men that are concerned about their character because they know that their character speaks to the character of Christ, to an onlooking world. And so this morning, a few takeaways for us. A marker of a healthy church is one in which the elders joyfully labor to shepherd the members, and the members prayerfully consider the well-being of the elders. Two, the church should be wise and cautious and humble when hearing an accusation against an elder and should follow the Scripture's teachings on how to confront that elder if he's in sin. Third, our church is led by a plurality of elders, just as an FYI here, not one single elder. Our goal is to promote a culture of gospel flourishing, transparency, safety, and accountability. Right, our goal is to promote a culture of gospel flourishing, transparency, safety, and accountability, which means please pray for us. Four, the character of an elder matters more than any other qualification. Therefore, we should not be hasty in our ordination of elders. It's better to be too slow than to install a disqualified man to pastoral ministry. So in light of God's word, why don't we go to, uh, go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will take the Lord's Supper together. God, we thank you for your word.
God, this is sovereignly where you have us in this text this morning, God, and I just ask that you would help us. Lord, I thank you for this congregation and just for their love for you, God, and just the joy it is as their pastor to serve them. And I know I speak for the other elders that feel the same way. And so, Lord, we give you honor, praise, and glory for them. And God, we pray that we would increasingly conform to Christ according to your word, that we would submit to your ways, that we would fear you and not fear man, and that we would be a church that by our love and care for one another would promote the unchanging message of the gospel. And we give you all praise and all glory in Jesus' name. Amen.